0: Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Welcome to The Fabric. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host. And today we have the enormous pleasure of sitting down with Mike Doherty, the co-founder and CEO of one of our portfolio companies, Remix. Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Buddy. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on the podcast today. I am too.
0: This is this has been a long time in coming and thrilled to have you. And uh, Mike, the gist of this podcast is to talk about you and get to know you and sort of what is the fabric of Mike Doherty as an entrepreneur. But before we get into all of that, let's hear a little bit about Remix A.I. Hey, give us a kind of overview of what you're working on.
1: Well, Remix AI came from the idea where I had been really excited about a lot of that was going on with generative art and generative AI art. And I saw over the last two years how much advancement there was in the technologies that were being used, the tools that were being used to create this art, the speed by which you could create these images was about as fast as you could take a picture, a photo. And it made me and our team think that there's going to be trillions of new images created by these tools, and it's going to unleash a level of creativity that we haven't seen before. With every sort of big technology shift, there tends to be a new app or a new place by which people share and collaborate around these new types of media whether it's YouTube and the internet or Instagram and mobile phones and photos or machine learning and TikTok, we thought that AI will create the same kind of new opportunity for a place that was purpose-built for this type of creation and this type of sharing. So we built Remix AI. It's a mobile app that's focused on collaboration. It's focused on creation. We designed it with a focus on being fast and fun and free, So that we could bring it to a larger audience of people who could try out generative art for the first time, maybe. We also wanted to keep it fun so you can add music to your creations and you can upload AI videos. And so it's got a little bit of a TikTok vibe in the feed that we built and it's on iOS and Android. So we wanted it to be something that you wouldn't be tied to your desktop and you could do this on the couch or do it in a way that's really fun and and enjoy it. we're going to come back and explore a little bit more remix down the road. But let's get to know Mike.
0: Let's get to know (laughs) Mike. I know a little already, but tell us sort of where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in the Northwest, in Boise, Idaho. All I don't right. know if you've been to Idaho, yeah. but
0: I, my favorite book, I've said this on the podcast before, is, is a Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose
1: that takes place in Boise. Have you ever read it? I have not, but oh. now I'm going to put that on my yes. list. we're going to have to put um, that in the notes on the pod. It's, it is amazing. Well, you know, Hemingway was a big fan of Sun Valley, and so he used to hang out up there. And growing up, I was lucky enough out of high school to be chosen by Boise State University to be what's called a Hemingway Scholar. Oh, wow. And so I was able to take a college class at Boise State. Uh, you know, a real college class as a high school student—you feel like yeah, you're pretty smart. You're super cool. It was cool, and it was a Hemingway scholar, so they would remind you about his connection to Idaho and Boise. Growing up for me, it wasn't like the most intellectual. It's not like New York City where your parents are in the arts and your next door apartment neighbor is like music label head or something. This is Boise where people have like more of a normal suburban or whatever life. And so anyway, the point is, is like being a Hemingway scholar, it made you think about things a little differently. Yeah, like, you mm.
0: you're up there you already. Yeah, and <laughs> hey, Boise was a small
1: town. I mean, it's yeah. grown. Is your family still back there? They just moved, but they had been there long enough that I had come back. And at the time when I went to college, I wanted to get out of town. I was like too small for me. You know, I was like young. So you have biases. And then I was really at the time excited about the East Coast and especially these movies with like Rob Lowe doing some sort of like crew thing or something. And you're (laughs) like, that ivy on the buildings looks nice. Yeah, so sophisticated, (laughs) so cool. So um, I was for some reason just really focused on that. And so I went to school on the East Coast. I went to Harvard, but I was really fascinated with that. Did you have brothers and sisters that had led the path on college for you? or? No, I didn't, actually. I was the oldest. Okay. I am the oldest. But then finally, my sister right underneath and my brother right underneath went to Yale. Wow. So, A rivalry. <laughs> so rival, yeah. yeah. But I think we just all saw that expansive idea of what's learning about new things. And I think the uh, East Coast and Ivy Leagues kind of represented that for us. And yeah, Boise was like that back then, but I was able to go back over time. And then fast forward to all the way very recently, my last startup that I was a CEO and founder of, we ended up opening an office in Boise. Yeah. And that was full circle for me. I was like coming back home. I felt pretty good. By the way, when we launched our office I was like hanging out with the mayor, yeah. right? First of all, which was like, I felt so good. Right, that. so powerful. Yeah, I was like, oh, I've like totally made it now. And so I'm hanging out with the mayor and like the head of commerce and all that in Boise. And then the governor came. Wow, big deal. They kind of were on different parties. so they, <laughs> It's not that they didn't like each other, but there weren't like... Hey buddy, you know right. it's like so. I had one on the one side, the governor. I had the mayor on the other side, and I had to cut the ribbon. And it was so funny because we were a certain size team at the time, and the governor got it wrong. And he said they're bringing 500 jobs to Boise. I'm like, uh, nah, maybe eventually, maybe in a decade. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was full circle. Boise is a lot different now. Boise has grown quite a bit, and a lot of people moved into Boise, especially during the pandemic. But was the office that you built there? Was it engineers? Was it salespeople? Was it? That's a- Great question. For anybody who's interested in that, actually, if you're a startup entrepreneur or somebody looking at other locations outside the Bay Area, for example, we had looked at Salt Lake City. We looked at Boulder. Boise was sort of the third in that mountain region. And the thing about Boise was we thought it could be really good at customer success and maybe sales what we didn't know is there were you know engineers in Boise yeah. and so we ended up hiring a great engineering team there and that was something we weren't expecting and probably at prices that were compelling we started doing i think it was 2016 2017 and By the time the pandemic came with the quarantine and people moving around, some of the price points ended up getting smoothed out. Like, you know, you end up living in Boise and getting a salary that was like more like the Bay Area because just the way paying for talent transformed during that time. But back then there was roughly a 30 percent difference lower on salary and then housing for people who lived in Boise was like 3X. In Boise, you get paid 30% less, which is less, but you end up getting three times the house. So it was the quality of life in Boise for people there was really good. You know, everyone there was very happy living there. And we enjoyed that office and that team and, and it was really strong culture. It was one of the best moves we made as a company to have that extension of our location there. And this is so, jelly, right? This was this jelly. So did yeah.
0: iHeart keep the
1: office there? Is it still up and running? They did. Yeah. And I believe it's still up and running. And the only reason I was pausing there is I know that iHeart recently went through team cutbacks in the last uh, two weeks. Yep. But I left iHeart two years ago and I was at iHeart for two years. So for the last four years, they were running Boise as an innovation and development area, like a lot of engineers, Jelly became sort of the double click and AdWords for iHeart mm-hmm. to buy audio ads yeah. and radio ads. And so that innovation so important in advertising these days to have ad tech. We powered that for iHeart. Yeah, that's neat. I was going to say, I'm an investor before Lobby in a company called Lively that okay. opened up
0: their offices in Boise. The exact same experience, just, you know went there for certain type of resources found great engineering talent there yeah. found great customer support people there the other thing is the attrition is sort of less in that that's in right that community
1: for whatever reason we can speculate but it is it's a different kind of culture than the bay area and i think the bay area is starting to influence these new development centers yeah both positively and negatively both positive and negative not to be negative on boise but i think the thing that we did notice was that the speed of innovation in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley is just unmatched. The excitement around new technologies, the excitement about experimentation with new, new technologies, ex- the excitement about iterating as fast as yes. you can with yes. the new technology is so ingrained in Silicon Valley. I think in Boise, it's more like, here's our roadmap, you execute against it. And that roadmap might be with, for software that's sort of legacy software that's been around for a while. A lot of the engineers we hired had worked on products that were, let's call them more traditional software, not even SaaS. Yeah. And so what I'm getting at is just the idea of leaning forward and kind of embracing these super cutting edge technologies. Right. I think that's one of the things we brought to Boise and some of the engineers that we got involved with were really excited to work at Jelly because they got to work on this cutting Leading edge stuff. Edge,
0: yeah. yeah. I wanted to talk about culture for a sec because you, know, you came from Boise and you went to Boston major culture difference, right? Um, yes. and we haven't gone through the rest of the paths that led you out to the Bay Area, but talk a little bit about that. When you went from Boise and you were sort of a freshman at Harvard, you know, what what were your
1: impressions and did you feel a cultural difference? How did you I react to it? Felt a cultural difference for sure. I would say part of it was Harvard, part of it was Boston. I guess the Harvard one I can talk about first is probably predictable. I had never met someone from a prep school before. Yeah. And not only that, but the history of the prep schools, like everyone knew what it meant to come from that specific prep school. And there were lots of them too. You'd have like 11 or 12 people from like Exeter or whatever. Right. And I didn't know anything about any of these schools. I hadn't heard of them How refreshing! Yeah, it was refreshing, but also you feel a little embarrassed. Like you're a bumpkin, like, right. oh, I'm supposed to know this. And it was kind of like early 90s, late 80s. So there's still a little bit of that preppy culture going on back then. It was an education, let's put it that way when i saw that movie about mark zuckerberg at harvard with the final clubs i totally recognized that yeah because i wasn't part of the insider lane to get into those types of clubs mm-hmm. and then boston my parents grew up in the East Coast, so okay. I like knew a little bit the East Coast. They were grew up in Philly, yeah. And so, if you know Philly, Boston ain't that. If you know Philly, it's kind of tough. And you know Boston, the East West, Coast, yeah, yeah. You know, so I was like, yeah, Boston reminds me of Philly a
0: little bit. So I grew up outside Chicago, so Midwestern, okay. and I went to Penn. So I, oh, okay. I do you know, know Philly. This. You know in Philly. Fact, <laughs> I will tell you, my first day when I went to Penn, I was a freshman, and I was assigned to a dorm with three other guys, and um, of course, I had called and spoken with each of them before for a few minutes we didn't have email we didn't have video conferencing at (laughs) the time right and i show up and my mom was proud that i was going to an ivy league school and she had me dressed up in some preppy clothing (laughs) which i would never otherwise wear and i walk in and we had sort of three bedrooms one was a double and two were singles and then we had a living room and in the living room as we walked in there were these two guys friends of my roommate that i had never met before one of them was flashing um, nunchucks and uh, and had sort of a cut off, you know, white feeder t shirt. And the other had a butterfly knife and was flinging his butterfly knife. And they were just hanging out, but that was their toys in their hands as they were waiting for my roommate to unpack. And because uh, oh his family didn't drop him off, they dropped him off. Like, first of all, I'd never seen nunchucks. I'll do that on TV. <laughs> I certainly had never seen a butterfly knife. And I just thought to myself, you know, I've just entered a new planet. this yeah. is amazing. This is going to be so different. And I saw my mom's face, which was like horrifying. That yeah. Her Ivy league son was now going to be, what
1: What was the story with those guys? Yeah, like He
0: grew up in Jamaica, New York. Okay. And these were his best friends and they and were college they kids, did. but yeah. they were his best yeah. friends and they drove him down to Penn to drop him off. And, that's and cool. then they were going to go to Max City afterwards and go have some fun.
1: You know, one thing about those schools though, and I was talking about this to my son, who's was looking at schools is that, When I went, it was kind of okay to be intellectual. And I think I had totally not seen that growing up. Like, you know, the bumpkin part or whatever, Idaho still has that sort of reputation, red state. And so when you got to Harvard, it was really refreshing to have roommates who were just so freaking smart. And I was just like blown away by how smart they were. I didn't feel like an imposter, but I was very close to being on the imposter syndrome. I was like, dang, these guys are Super bright. Really freaking smart. And they all went off to do things that were so cool and fascinating. And just, they are super smart people. That is neat. So, and
0: yeah. How many people from your high school ended up going to college? Was it a common path or an uncommon? It was pretty
1: common at our school. We were suburban. Okay. And we were a Catholic school. And so it did lead to a lot of people going to college. But, you know, to be fair, not everybody. It's mm-hmm. true. Like, and I think about it, there were people who didn't go down that path. And if people did go on that path, it was very common to go to the local state colleges right. like University of Idaho or Boise State. But some of them would go off to like the Northwest. Skiing was big in Boise, so people were big time skiers. And University of Utah was super popular. There was this one friend I had. He went to Colorado Mountain College. Huh. They had ski patrol management as a class. And you would ski out of the classroom onto the slopes. Wow. So he's doing it right. You know, it's funny, when I went to Harvard, a lot of the people saw me as the interesting person because I was coming from that background. Yeah, like, they're like, whoa, you know. I told them about how at Wood River High School and in, in Sun Valley, they had rodeo as a varsity sport. That's and that blew away this person I told who grew up in New York City. They're like, oh my God, just like the Marble Man. You know, like, it was pretty funny.
0: So. I wonder if now, the, because the world is smaller, I wonder if it, <laughs> it would be still the same cultural shock that you experienced and I experience today for our kids right. if they want. I mean, there's yeah. a lot more similarity in my mind yeah. between the
1: Bay Area and New York than there was when I was a kid. I totally agree with that. I was thinking about that the other day. I there was no Instagram. You're not seeing videos. people's life right. constantly. Absolutely. Culture fashion was coming through TV. So that was where I learned it. Yes. Cable TV and TV which a lot of people were surprised I came from Idaho because they're like, you don't seem like that. I don't know what they were expecting, but you know, I think they thought we had like outhouses and things, you know? <laughs> like no, no running water, but like it was because of TV. Yeah. And so when you now take that 30 years later or whatever, and you say, it's the internet, and it's social media, hyper-connected internet on your phone all the time, yep. it's not surprising that, that I don't have an, an Idaho accent. So the TV voice that you end up developing is the same. Is kind of like the you know Instagram culture yeah. that everyone shares, David or TikTok, TikTok culture yeah. now that everyone shares. So yeah. I, I do think you're right. I think there's yeah. more commonality. Yeah. So what did you study at Harvard? I studied history and literature as oh, a major. there, as sort yeah. of a combo, perfect for technology. <laughs>
0: right.
1: No skills of no, technology. I mean, I mean,
0: it's so fun. Yeah. It, it, it repeatedly we see this over and over. Yeah. For those Absolutely. that are listening, you don't necessarily have to have a <laughs> tech background to get into technology. I, I don't and be jump
1: conversations because I see them on Twitter or whatever, and everyone's ripping apart the concept of a liberal arts education. It has to be science and engineering and all that. I get it. I understand why people are pushing that and everything. But the critical thinking and just sort of like well, the expanding exciting. your mind about how to think about things and also just approach things that liberal arts provided, I think it's understated. It's also difficult to argue with someone that you shouldn't have more science and engineering. Yep. But the flip side is, oh yeah, I wouldn't ever have changed that. In fact, I thought at some point along that path that I was going to be a professor or something. That's how you get into it. And that's like, well, what's my job going to be? And of course, I went to a completely opposite profession than that, and I had reasons for that. But my point is, is that at the time, you know, it's this intellectual pursuit and this critical thinking and the expansion of how you look at the world.
0: Yeah. And so, let's go to your career. So, you, the first step, I think, was investment banking. It if was I'm not mistaken. Not no. to be a cliche,
1: but I went into investment banking, no skills. No accounting, no finance. Wait, uh, isn't that investment banking? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, for my, that's so funny for you say my investment banker friends, I apologize. That's so funny you say that. Uh, <laughs> we used to say what <laughs> it was between investment bankers and accountants. Huh? Investment bankers can do accounting with a hangover. <laughs> that shows you a little bit of the bro environment of investment banking yes. back then. It was all male. Like there were some women who worked in investment banking when I did, but it was such a haze type environment. I went through the whole thing and I had a crash course in finance and a crash course in EBITDA and, you know, everything about analyzing companies. You know, one of the things I looked at, and if anybody's kids go into that kind of profession is you learn a lot in a short, short amount of time. It was, you work your ass off. Sometimes people say you're kind of mortgaging your youth, but like I think the other way of looking at it is you're absorbing so much about business in such a short period of time that in two years, if you're working hundred hours a week, you learn four years worth of stuff and you have hands-on, of course, finance, hands-on on finance. So the downside of investment banking is when I eventually left, you think you're really smart about everything and in reality, you weren't very right. surface. You don't know companies, you thought, thought you did. did, but you know, some level of how companies were talk about themselves in an SEC filing, you don't really know what it took to operate those companies or even grow them. And so I I remember that, that was my second chapter when I went into technology, was just the wake up call that I still knew nothing.
0: I wanna try to get inside your head a little bit about how you decided to go into investment banking and sort of what were your motivations? Yeah. And, you know, if you sort of flash back to your senior year at Harvard yeah. and you know you're graduating, you know, what was going through your head at that time?
1: I mean, this is going to get a little personal, but I'll tell you exactly what it is because I'm not ashamed of it. I was so deep in history and literature and specifically literary theory mm. that's sort of philosophical, critical theory, postmodern theory, you know, sign and symbol it's really kind of stuff that messes with your brain. It's almost like philosophy. So you know when people go deep in philosophy, they get a little bit like dark or they go a little bit like, you know, sometimes mathematics can do that too. Mm -hmm. I was in that zone and I knew I was there and it wasn't good for me. I was like feeling, I don't wanna say depressed, but I was going in a certain direction. And so I said, I need something to burn this out of me. Interesting. And so I went into investment banking knowing that it was going to be a complete right, cleanse, complete opposite. Like fire it up and burn it all out. And so, did anybody guide? Like, did your parents have an influence on it? Did your friends that were interviewing? Or no, I think I just you just thought of that. I, yeah, I think that's how it was. I mean, I look at my kids too. Like back then, I didn't have people give me advice. I just somehow thought about it a lot, I guess, and then I would self-directed. And maybe that's an entrepreneur thing. And so I did a self-analysis and almost a self-heal there. Okay. And I don't know how I came up with that solution to the problem but it worked yeah as soon as i got into investment making i didn't have time to think about anything except for that managing director breathing down my throat where's my gosh where's my thing (laughs) you know like the classic story was i'm sitting across and this guy gets off the phone and he starts laughing he goes yeah i just got off the phone my buddy is working over at lehman brothers and i'm like what happened he goes well he spent all night working on this deck or whatever and it's a pitch book it's actually back then it was actually pitch Mm -hmm. books
0: literally physical with yeah. spiral bound, you know? Right. So he, he
1: shows the draft to the managing director before the guys goes home and he goes, so what, what am I going to say tomorrow in the meeting? And the managing director is such a jerk, right? It's just basically a dick. And he's like, it's like succession, you know, right. on steroids. <laughs> and so he's like, you're not going to say anything. He goes, let me tell you how this is going to go down. This is what he said to the summer associate, right? To good pitch to work at our firm. Right. You know, he's like, you're going to flip this book again. You're going to stay up all night, check every page, You're going to check all 12 books. You're going to then take him to the airport. When you're getting on the plane to walk in the back into coach, you're going to drop one off to me in first class. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're going to stay awake. You're going to go to the meeting with me, not say a word. And and it's something like that. I'm oh just like, so you told he, this guy's like kind of <laughs> like laughing. You he's like, may have another. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. He's like laughing. He kind of, in his head, he calls his buddy. He's like, dude, this is what my managing director just said to me. <laughs> and so he told me, you know, in the cube right next right. to him. And so it was that kind of culture, you know, you, you didn't have time to think about anything. No. I was so cocky that first day, my managing director so kicked my ass. I still was cocky a second or two after that. About two days after that, I wasn't cocky anymore. I was so running around trying to get things done. And that cleansing that I had looked for was instant. I mean, it was at that point just holding on and learning. And I ended up doing it for eight years. So Eight years. Yeah, that's amazing. Tenure. I mean, it's interesting because you had a lot of positive
0: affirmation about your prowess, right? You obviously were a very strong student in high school or you wouldn't have gotten into Harvard. You get into Harvard. You obviously did really well there and acclimated well. You get a great job graduating out of college, which is super hard to do. And now you're put into this inferno and all of a sudden you got a piece of humble pie served to you. Not that you did anything wrong, it's just that's the culture. Good lesson to be learned. And I think as we think about entrepreneurship, there's a lot of that humble pie
1: that gets served in entrepreneurship. That's true. Humble pie, probably the things that have served me the most, the best probably if I look back over the years, it's putting in the hard work matters. Yes, And that having that sort of constitution Of being able to come back after the humble buy and and just keeping at it. You know, some of the negatives I learned, some behaviors I had to change out of investment banking was the apprenticeship nature of it and the hazing and sort of like the part where you are working hard and you're expected to earn your way through Mm -hmm. was so ingrained in me over the years that when I came into Silicon Valley, That's not the culture of Silicon Valley, but you know, there's great things about Silicon Valley, but it's definitely not a sort of earn your way up the ranks. There are people coming out of college that are engineers who are treated like very, you know, precious and all that. And so you have to be careful in cultures because you don't mismatch the culture. I came in way too hard, way too hot coming into Silicon Valley company. I kind of expected hierarchical, expected if you said something a certain way that they followed through with it. And then if they didn't, you'd be like, why didn't you like right. sort of the investment banking mode? Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. just not how culture is built in tech companies. And especially the more senior you are, you're more of a servant to, you know, like almost the opposite. It's like inverted. Yeah. How did you decide? Okay. So you were at investment banking. You did a whole bunch of stuff, as
0: I recall, fixed income and corporate yeah. finance and, you ended up there for eight years. I guess during that time, did you think to yourself, hey, I could be a partner here? Or did you say, hey, I'm still looking
1: for my yeah. exit. I want to do something. I just haven't found it. I was in high yield most of the time, junk bonds, mm-hmm. and high yield was mainly used for leverage buyouts. Yep. And so I was interested in that. I was like, maybe I'll go be work at a private equity firm. If you think about what private equity firms do in, you know, in Silicon Valley, we don't touch them that often but that was the area i was thinking and i remember i was at a bloomberg terminal and i've in the middle of the night i've got to get quotes for the steel industry bonds, because we're doing comps, and we're going to do a pitch the next day for a Blackstone LBO. And I'm pulling all these quotes for the entire steel industry's bonds, and I'm realizing the entire steel industry is worth less than this brand new company that just went public called Amazon. <laughs> it's amazing. And so I talked to the head of the steel, and, and, like the guy, and I was like, dude, the, Amazon's worth more than the entire steel industry. He goes, ah, Amazon's going away. And so a couple months later, I get put on a project, and I run across an old friend from Harvard who was in VC at the time, so venture capital, not mm-hmm. private equity, yeah. his name was Danny Reimer. Yeah. And so Danny was saying, hey, look, if you ever get excited about tech and want to come over to our side, they are always looking for smart people, let me know. And that was the process that I started wondering, like, what is my career going to end up being? I really love the optimism and the fact that the future can change things in tech. I'm not sure I love what private equity is about, which is buying old industries and like eking out X percent by doing layoffs or doing whatever to get a little bit more EBITDA margin. So I started thinking then, and that led to eventually calling Danny up and saying, well, if you do know anything, I might be interested. And it was right at the bubble or the first bubble of internet. It was like 1999. And he had a company going public that he had invested in called LoudEye that was about digital media and coding and moving traditional media assets to the internet eventually became one of the first digital music companies. And he connected me there, and I went there. I didn't know anything, had no skills. And music industry, was that no, something? No, the industry, I, did, I liked the industry, but I was not skilled in any way with either the job, the industry, that type of company. But I'm so glad I did it. You know, it was Does such Danny a, know that he was a catalyst for this this direction <laughs> in your life? I think I might have told him one time, but like, great. It is, he was the origin story. Kind of that chapter. And you went in, as as I recall, in a BD role. I actually went initially as a wingman to the CFO. Hmm. And I knew I didn't want to be the CFO. So I moved over to BD as fast as I could, just so I could learn it. Because I was like, I don't want to be pigeonholed as a finance guy. No no offense to that. It's just I didn't want that. That wasn't what you wanted. Yeah, That wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to learn more about companies because I realized how little I knew. And I remember I did try to cycle through as many different types of jobs as I could that wasn't engineering over those years. I remember one time my friend, a different friend I had from Harvard, he was like, Mike, you've tried every job out almost. (laughs) He goes, what are you still trying to learn? And he's like, I just started a company. And he was kind of like giving me crap. And I'm like thinking to myself going, he's kind of right. I mean, I do learn something every day about anything in life. You learn something new every day, but I was looking at myself saying, what else am I trying to learn here? And that's was the genesis of the next chapter, which is maybe I'll start my own company. But it's funny how friends, yeah. maybe that's a, a little thing, my friends influence me too much because they're the ones who are at the inflection points so of when I make decisions. <laughs> but, but what I'm hearing, and it's come through loud and clear on other podcasts
0: is almost an insatiable curiosity, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if I look at entrepreneurship, there are no predefined formulas right. of success there's a lot of learnings from the past but it takes the curiosity to sort of pull those threads and weave them together
1: so I'm hearing that there's an insatiable amount of curiosity here I think that's right I think it was one of my high school teachers told me that he's like you always want to learn the next thing yeah great I was like what do you mean by that what did you Think about the music industry at the time, and well, a couple of things.
0: One is you joined at a pretty interesting time, yeah. right? Napster. It wasn't a smooth sail. Yeah, right? it was. It was, it was like, the
1: moment. It was the, it was the so mo- talk about that a little it bit. It was one of the most disruptive moments in technology on the internet and media. Is like when people realized the MP3s could be shared on peer-to-peer mm-hmm. for free. It's never been possible yep. before, and so it unlocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it d- disrupted models. It it made some consumers very happy. It made the idea that you can get access to any song you want at any time. So scarcity became less scarce. It blew up the album, (laughs) made it about the singles. All these things happened from technology. And in fact, we use that with Web3 as an analogy. The pre-iPod days, the pre-iTunes days, it was like Rioport. port. You had to figure out how many, like 15 songs you could put on this little device. Maybe even the file structure was exposed to you. So super raw kind of where web three is now, super raw. Great analogy. Yeah, and then I remember when iTunes launched, the connected iTunes, the store, the iTunes store. We were helping Apple at that time. Our company was a B2B platform, and we were helping them with the music and the metadata. They launched on the Macintosh, and then they eventually launched the PC, and the PC launched on iTunes. They wanted to promote on the front page of iTunes, Joss Stone song. So Hmm. it was EMI, cut some deal. I think it was EMI, cut some deal with Apple. They were going to promote her new thing. So here's what happened. We were ingesting all the music into iTunes. And so the metadata had to go with it. Right. Well, somebody at the label didn't know their own artist, and they typed in Josh Stone. <sighs> so of course, you know, when you're pumping in a whole bunch of yeah, metadata, you you're notice. not going to catch that. There's <laughs> no. no AI or ML like, looking for like, stuff like that right. back then. <laughs> And so it went out, and it was on the front page. Josh oh, Stone. Oh no! And so the chairman of EMI or Universal, whoever it was, was so pissed, Well, ballistic, and Apple was so ballistic. And then they yelled at us, you know. And we learned it was actually the label itself. It kind of gave us the wrong data. But I remember at the time thinking, like, data, metadata. No one's ever going to solve this problem. Yeah. This problem is going to be complicated for my whole life, and the- and it still is. But it was a fascinating time. It was very disruptive. It still hasn't kind of, well, I guess it's shaken itself out a little bit, but it was exciting. There's been a number of industries that have been kind of
0: redefined over the last 30 or 20 years or so. One that sort of, to me, is very analogous to the music industry and yet has had a very different end result is photography. So Kodak, when we were younger, dominated print development. And Yet they were also one of the first to sort of seize upon this idea of digital files of photographs. And yet they were very reticent. And in fact, I think if you sort of read some of the history now, you'll see they actually, Precluded themselves from making investments in digital because Hmm. it would clearly have cannibalized their the innovator's dilemma, and it was the classic innovator's dilemma. And so, lo and behold, this whole industry has sort of obsoleted Kodak. Music, you know, there was no one dominant player in music. There were labels, there were the artists, there were the RIAA. But I'm curious, you know, having had a front row seat there. Did you see where it was going at the time? And you know, when you look yeah. at that, how
1: are you thinking? Because you do have a very analogous industry right now. Right. How are you thinking about that? One thing that's ingrained in me over those decades is that technology doesn't ask for permission. It continues. Yeah. So you embrace. So be optimistic about what it can do, be wary of what it might do that is maybe contrary to your interests or what have you, whether it's society or whether it's a specific industry or company, but assume that the technology will be difficult to be regulated. Assume that innovation is somewhat ingrained in us as people, especially in areas like this, and that it will only get better. And so I think The photography example is such a good one because it's full circle right now. So like and it's something that we're looking a really a lot at easy, and that is deepfakes and AI. So AI platforms are transforming how you produce images. Yep. Mid journey, stable diffusion, et cetera. Open AI is Dolly Two. Dolly two. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating and magical. Yeah, really Um, magical. Really magical. And you can, you know, and it's rapidly evolving, like weeks by weeks, it's getting better. So we are right in the middle of, in my view, next big shift. I thought Web3 was the next big shift. I think AI, this type of thing, is probably bigger. I do get back to, I do think Web3 and AI have strong alignment. Oh, yeah. Very strong alignment. Anyway, the point is is that photography, when it first came out, digital photography, it was so easy for people to take pictures that people started to downplay whether it's really art. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to take a picture, et cetera. And is it really like the same kind of work that art takes to create like a painting? And then of course, Instagram made it even more mass market with filters and things like that, where everyone felt creative. Mm -hmm. If you look at mid-journey, you look at anything like this, takes a photograph that you make or an image that you want to anchor with, and just creates almost anything out of it. Yeah, We're at that moment again, where what is art is being asked, like, is AI art really art? Because it's so instant and so fast. Second thing that's happening- And not necessarily human-generated. Is photography art in the form of, well, a camera is the technology, and it takes something quickly in the form of an image that's a representation of that moment in real life with that kind of lighting. What is this new world where it's a tool that's being able to create this instantly, and you can make many, many, many versions of it. Like an artist can spit out 100 things in about two hours to look at, or shorter. So we are at an inflection point with this kind of metaphor where an explosion of content is here, and it's coming, and it's going to be more, that more types of people will be able to be artists. So. It's not just the mainstream of adding a filter to a photograph. It is somebody who's got a good eye, who had no skill with art, can now do it. Yeah. So a curator or somebody who's just got good taste, if they learn how to prompt and use some of the tweaked little settings, they can spit out work that you might say is amazing art, is Beautiful. important art. Right. So it's going to expand the number of types mm-hmm. of people who are artists. That's going to explode. So you have content exploding, the amount of time it takes in shrinking the number of people who can be artists expanding. And so we think web three. I also believe, and I want you to sort of respond to this if you feel differently,
0: that artists spawn artists, meaning once you've created something, once you've produced something creative, you're more sensitized to viewing other art, right? I think it's it's the the house without paintings on the
1: wall is the house that's owned by somebody that's never created art. I agree with that. I think that In this moment that we're in now, we're gonna see that shown in artists becoming collectors, collectors becoming artists, well, artists becoming curators. So the gatekeeper model is gonna start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Like for example, if an artist finds a piece of art that's cool and you follow that artist on Twitter- You go right to the artist. You might go right to the artist. Like who did they find? What's this new thing? So artists become curators, just like you say. Now this moment we're in is really exciting, it's also, daunting, but it's also extremely exciting. And it's going to change everything again. So this is that peer-to-peer file sharing Napster type moment for the music, except now it's about creativity, production, what's real. I mean, we all know that this is going to change. Because how fast it's evolving by the next election cycle, we're going to have deep fakes all over the place. All over. So what do we do about that? Authorship, provenance, records around how images are created and when they were. I think blockchain does that extremely well. So that's what I think you're going to see. I mean, this is what we believe. So blockchain will be the record. Mm-hmm. And what you do with that, that's what companies like us and others will develop. Infinite production, authorship created with blockchain. The reason why blockchain matters is because it's not a private database. Right. It's an open source Anybody database. Can access, Anybody can access right. Anyone can read it. So it's the right place to put that.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So you join as the market's going up, the market goes down, you're in a, an industry of turmoil and I forgot how many years you spent at Lada, but I was there for six years, six years. And then, yeah. so, so talk about the end and, and then, you know, the, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to start something on my own. Like do get us inside so, your head there.
1: Yeah, my career started with the bubble of the internet. Four hundred people hired at a startup that had less than three million in revenue. I love it. You know, a billion dollar valuation back then, which that was, was big. were the good old days. The good old damn days it. raised hundred or two hundred million dollars, uh, and that was a lot back then. Yeah, and then proceeded to fire everybody except for fifty. <sighs> and even then, we should have kept going probably because we didn't have a business really. We acquired twelve companies. Mm-hmm. Because we decided we we're a zombie, but we don't want to give the money back. So that was six years. Six years of finding product market. It was the opposite of what you're supposed to do with iterative startup. <laughs> like where your seed stages you're figuring out PMF. This was like, oh, we're massive. Now find the PMF. Right. It
0: was the, on the trunk. <laughs> it was the opposite. And were you at that point at the end of it,
1: you're on a BD role. I was the BD role, I was also corp dev. I acquired two of the companies that ended up being the things that we ended up being known for. Yeah one was from a guy named Peter Gabriel who's you know you know famous so we closed that deal and we had to track him down he signed the definitive agreement backstage at one of his concerts oh that's that <laughs> so that's is cool that's, that's the story that's pretty good, good all, right yeah anyway that became a music download platform b2b global so we handled rights in 26 countries mm, commerce awesome. in 26 countries so Sweet. payments that was hard and that's what got acquired cuz Nokia needed to compete with Apple oh. and so they needed their own back end for their store yes. so it had value um, but anyway, that was six years. And then I went to a company called Tell Me, which was one of the most pivotal things I ever did. Met Gary there. And Jim Everingham, who you guys know really well, was there. Just a real magnet for talent. One of those opportunities where technology is going to change everything, where people work there because they want the future to happen now. Speech recognition. I want to talk to the thing at Star Trek. Yeah. I want to talk to the thing and make the food for me. And so that was kind of place. And so it attracted the smartest engineers you've ever worked with, the smartest people you ever worked with. We ended up getting acquired by Microsoft, which was great. But I think the reality is, is that company ended up spawning so many other companies and people went off and continued to do big things that that was really the history of that company was really what it did after with the alumni. Mm -hmm. And then I started my first company right after that. And that was a 10 year journey. We ended up getting acquired 10 years in roughly. And then I was there two more years. So I was there for 12 years. and Which is really unusual in this. I was gonna, yeah. that was one comment I was gonna make as I was kind of preparing for this. You
0: had long stints at places. And yeah. if there's any message to sort of send to the young people, I had a long stint. I'm biased towards this, so I yeah. admit, but when you've been at a place for a long time, there's no uncertainty about the depth yeah. of your learning. Because, right. The first year or two, you're kind of acclimating. The last year or two, you're kind of fading out. But if you're there in between,
1: you're really learning. I agree with you. I mean, I think that's why I probably stayed at those places or, or kept pushing in those places for that long. Because as we already talked about, I was kind of a big learner. I was somebody yep. who wanted to continue to learn. And I was always learning. And I never stopped. In fact, my friend had to kick me in the head and say, Are you, why, you know, well, I'm learning something every day. He's like, Okay, but you can learn more yeah. if you take this other step but i think with the company when i started you know the jelly oh my god the things i learned and what was the genesis for jelly like how did you come up with the idea how did you yeah. you know get yourself courageous enough to then take that plunge one thing we learned at tell me was that if you put advanced technology next to a really big industry that doesn't have advanced technology you can get big contracts revenue can flow quickly to you and i think at tell me we had pitched ahead of cbs radio you should do in something in car where it's interactive radio. We didn't know any better. We just pitched it, yeah. you know, using your voice. Right. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, you should do this. And, and he said, okay, go talk to this guy. And so I was the biz dev guy at tell me. And so I go call one of his presidents and he's like, okay, in order for us, to, I go, just give me your API, we'll build it for free and we'll give it back to you. You can say, give me Howard Stern, like basically Alexa back yeah. in the day. We'll yeah. give it to you. And he's like, okay, that sounds great, but we don't have one API all of our whatever 200 stations are on their own on-premise. Oh my god. System, I can't give you an API. And I'm like, "Oh my god, this is a huge industry. It's old, but it's huge. It's still huge, and they don't have a normal cloud platform." And tell me made so much money in transforming on-premise software into cloud software using speech recognition. Then I said, this is a huge industry that needs that. My co-founder Jatin and I basically, Jatin Parekh, we basically said, this is a great opportunity. We can do a profitable business in audio and music, which as you know, was hard at the time Yes, with the lawsuits and everything from the labels. And we're like, this is one that's not, there's no lawsuits. This is going to avoid all the rights problems. And yet it's in an industry we love. And so we jumped in, we initially created this really crazy idea of Crowdsourcing a radio station where you can use a mobile phone and you, in live with other people who are driving around, think about how dangerous that is, <laughs> can choose the next song in real time. Yeah. So it got so much press. Like on mainstream, I was on CNBC Squawk Box. They're like, so let me get this straight. You can crowdsource a, a radio station. They're like, this is going to change broadcasting. And we had all these fun game mechanics, like you could shoot a rocket on the air. And when, you, when it was sort of like a major request. And when you got your song to play your rocket, it would read out your name oh, on the air. Love it. This next track is brought to you by Mike D. And it was in text-to-speech. So we had this really fun platform. And we got on 30 radio stations. So we worked our ass off. But we really were a tweener by the time we needed to raise money. So my journey with Jelly started with that. It led through 10 years of six-month runways. (laughs) Because we were in radio, the VCs were like, eh. Right. It's contrarian. Yeah. And one thing I learned from that space, and this is for entrepreneurs who are trying to decide what to go into, contrarian ideas are fantastic because there's no other competition. And if you hit it, you're going to hit it big. They're hard with VCs though, because they're contrarian right. by default. Yeah. So what happens is you end up needing more traction with those spaces. In fact, there was at the lobby conference, I think there was a, a panel on this that I went to where you talk to these guys who are in industries that are more traditional. They're maybe crushing it, but you need to like have a different threshold for people to care because again, most of the investments going into the growth areas that people right. have so, identified. And so we were definitely not in the growth area. Anyway, so it was like 10 years of building, executing and the sort of tenacity and the persistence that you need to have to do that and the constitution to kind of go through that, I believe is a trait for entrepreneurs. I, yeah, I do think that I that's totally something agree. you have to have. Yeah. It's not well, always fun. And it's, games. Not it's not always, not always obvious. No, it's not. I always joke. There's probably 18 ways that companies die yeah. in the startup journey. You're not going to have all 18 hit you. You're going to have like three. But you don't know which three of the 18 you're going to get. Yeah. And you don't know if it's the death knoll either. You have to get through each one of them. So like founder divorce or being orphaned by a VC or whatever, there's going to be something that hits you. And at that moment, you need to get yourself through it first, because as a CEO or a co-founder, you're going to need to lead the team. Yep. So mentally, you have to get through it fast and you got to get your company through it. And so, and it's
0: a lonely job too. I yeah. mean, the one thing I, you know, I say that to my kids who are now at the age where they're finishing college and they're entering the workforce yeah. and their friends are starting companies and they're thinking of joining a startup and, you know, being a CEO period, but in particular yeah. as CEO of a startup company can be an incredibly lonely place to be, especially most of the time, meaning when it's yeah. not
1: going, swimmingly well right yeah 100 percent. you can't really talk to your board all the time as much as you think they're going to be living your journey and that's not their job right they're they hired you as the founder to run the company you know yes discuss hard things with them for advice and direction but at the same time it's not their job you know to run the company so it's hard to basically bounce everything off of them because you have to make or you have to at least assess some scenarios mm. before you talk to them about it Second thing is your significant other. You can't no. just load them up all the time. That's a great way to not have a significant <laughs> other anymore. Yeah. So that's tricky. Actually, a couple of things I found that were really helpful is having a co-founder that is a strong co-founder for yeah. you. Yeah. If you're a technical co-founder, maybe it's someone who complements that. If you're a business type co-founder like I was, you know, technical co-founder. And if you can find the right co-founder where there's a good compliment personality-wise, then you can kind of lean on each other. Yeah. I kind of like have huge respect for solo founders because so many times I needed that through the path, through the journey. And so that really helps us to have someone you can talk to and someone you can work with like that. You can't talk to your team about it. One other thing I do think is a tip for entrepreneurs who are coming, maybe this is the first startup is I joined a CEO group. I was in that CEO group for four years. And that was really helpful. It was a group of people that you could share. It was. You could feel open. You can feel open. You can share the issues. And they get to know you over four years. So they know your company because they've heard you talk about it. So they give you, like, over time, even good advice. But just talking it out was very helpful.
0: And ultimately, the the end result for Jelly was you sold to iHeartRadio. Yes. And you spent a couple years there, you know, having spent as much time as the CEO and pursuing these opportunities in different directions, and then ultimately being acquired, you know, what was that like for you to, you know, no longer be in charge? Yeah. Was it relieving? Was it frustrating? Was it a little bit of both?
1: And how did you address that? Initially, it was relieving kind of because you're at the end, not fundraising anymore. Yeah, You're not fundraising. You have an exit. You You know, you're happy about the exit. Your investors are happy about the exit. Yeah. And. And that's a, a moment of celebration. It's a milestone. Yeah. Then we were actually kept as a separate subsidiary. So it, it didn't really feel that different. So you're still running it. Yeah, we're still running it. So obviously my board all of a sudden changed. It was more, you know, the, the sort of executive that I was reporting to at iHeart. Yeah. So that didn't feel that different. For me, the biggest difference came when I left. Hmm. That was tough. Yeah. That was really tough. That probably was that whole sale psychological thing. Hitting me at once. Like, oh my God, this is no longer my. Yeah. Life. yeah. That's when they hit me, was when I left. Because like, I think they let me run it enough during the two years Mm -hmm. that it didn't feel
0: you know i would i don't have exactly the same experience i co-founded this company called titan aerospace i was a non-operational co-founder but i was also the only non-operational person like everybody else was an employee there and we sold it to google and all google was wonderful about hiring everybody but not me i had a different job yeah Uh, and i remember coming home a couple days after you know we closed and the money hit the account and you know, my wife had made like an amazing dinner, and we had champagne, and it was a pretty big life event for us. And I was blue, and I couldn't yeah. figure out what was going on with me. And my wife finally shook me. She's like, what, "You know, what
1: the fuck? this What's is a celebration, on? right? This is a celebration. You, yeah. you know, you
0: should be so proud." And I remember it finally, it just kind of jumping out of me and saying, "Yeah, but I'm no longer
1: involved." If it's a loss. It feels like a major loss. Yeah, I felt blue. In fact. When I left my last all hands on Friday, I couldn't keep it together. Mm. And so I started crying mm. and I just couldn't deliver it. And I was saying such sappy things. So like, I should have been smart enough to write a script right. that you're not going to cry. Yeah. But I wrote like the things that I, really that I cared felt. about, right. but really they were did. like the ones that make you want to like, oh, you know, you get a little bit of a klepto or whatever. But so I was like. You guys are gonna be great, and they're all looking at me like, well, "Yeah, we know we're gonna be great. What's your problem?" But like, I, I was so internalizing it sure. personally, and I'm just like, "You, this is the best team in the industry. You're gonna do big things. You don't need me anymore." And they're. Yeah, yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't need you anymore. Bye, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> it was tough, and your identity is so wrapped up into it. I think is really what it is. That's Also, right. and it's sort of you go through this instant like that's not me anymore. Yep. I found that also I was not nearly close to being ready to turn it off or or slow down. Like I felt like I had more to learn. Right. Back to that. Yeah. And so when we started easy, you know, I was really eager to actually challenge myself to the levels we didn't get to with jelly. So, you know, leverage what you learned, do it better this time, and then get to areas you never got challenged with this one and see what you learn from that and make the mistakes, but learn from them. So that's kind of the inspiration for me personally or the motivation. You know, we got to know
0: you guys as you were starting and then we got to sort of see you progress along the way. And then ultimately we were very excited to pursue an investment with you. And clearly you were an entrepreneur. Clearly you were starting something. You were going to start something. And you've talked a little bit about this dynamic in the market that creates this wonderful moment in time for what you're doing. But undoubtedly the market's perception of the import of this changed. It did turn cold. With that, you know, how did that impact your psyche, your founder psyche? I mean, because
1: there's a lot of gravitas, there's
0: a lot of you know
1: fortitude there. Yeah. Well, with our initial product, we just saw such a big group of our community were AI artists. They were folks who were making art using AI generative tools, and then selling that art through NFTs to the digital art community. And this started to really grow about a year and a half ago to two years ago. And so when we were noticing that, we had a lot of feedback from our community saying, I would like to be able to kind of produce or use your app. And in your feed, I'd like to be able to contribute images and art right to the feed you know, directly. And so you know, we took that sort of feedback and started thinking about it. Many people had called us Instagram's you know, crypto wallet already. And as we were thinking about what to do with this interest from the community, this was sort of the same time that generative AI really kind of exploded related to new capabilities from people like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion, et cetera, and this generational moment where new technology is going to shape our culture. And so we looked at this and said, this is a huge opportunity to lean into both our existing community, but more importantly to this you know magical new technology that's been created and create something new, create something that would be part of helping shape where generative art goes, how to get more people to do it, how to have fun doing it and collaborate, and also be part of what we believe we are on, which is on the cusp of a big cultural change. And given that, it was pretty clear that whether we called it a pivot or wh- whether we dug into what our users were telling us they wanted, we wanted to move extremely fast here. By the way, the space moves extremely fast. So another thing that we bet on was that that speed of innovation would continue in AI. So we just jumped in earlier this year and released a Remix AI. Huge amount of interest in the product when we launched it. And then we've just doubled down since then, going with where the users have told us they wanted us to go. You have to always be iterating as a startup, especially in the earliest stage. That is our job. Our job is to put forth a thesis and learn, you know, uh, see how users interact or customers interact with what you've given them, take with data and other feedback, iterate as fast as you can to try to achieve something that's scalable, both in terms of engagement, product market fit, and also a growth model. And I think you know, at the earliest stage where you're in a seed stage, your goal is a journey towards product market fit. And so we don't view taking user feedback as anything but normal. You should be open to basically going with what you're learning around that iteration, even if it means that you're going to radically change your approach.
0: As an entrepreneur, you have to have a North Star and you have to truly believe in your North Star in some regards almost blindly and yet it can't be blindly you have to be receptive to the constant inflow of new information new data yeah. so it's this delicate balance between having unwavering conviction around your north star and yet the sort of self-awareness enough yeah. to take in the new data and reassess yeah. what ends up being the result of that is what you said early in this interview which i just love which is this word iterate right yeah. there's I think if I were to try to synthesize a, not the, but a common ingredient of successful startups, it's this almost unending cycle of iteration. Yeah. Test, try, challenge, test, try, challenge. And it, it sounds like you're
1: going through that now. Cycle, cycle, speed, cycle, yeah. test, challenge, cycle, ship. Yeah. And uh, there are two CEOs I've met in my career who, when I was trying to learn, or I'm still learning, but you know, as I was coming as a young CEO and learning, one was Mike McHugh, who was the CEO at Tell Me and now Flipboard. And then the other one is a really great executive Dave Gerard, formerly of Google. He's the CEO of Upstart, mm-hmm. which is a public company now. Mm-hmm. But both of them had an approach which was interesting, and that is assume that you're looking back on yourself. And now it's five years from now. What decision should you be making right now? Yes. The other so one is hard. Mike's take on that was a little different is that if they hired your replacement today, cause you're the founder who couldn't get to the next level, couldn't scale. What would the new guy or woman come in? What would they do now hmm. and do that now? Hmm. And so it's an interesting sort of reflective yeah, moment. Hard. Always think about stuff like that, which is what are you going to shoot yourself for that you didn't do right now? And so kind of like that helps create urgency or priorities around certain things that you know you need to do. You've been on an amazing career journey and you've been successful and you've enjoyed the
0: fruits of your labor and all that. What motivates you? Like even way back when, and when does Mike sort of achieve? When have you achieved? That sounds like a therapy, like a
1: therapy <laughs> question. <laughs> I tell you it's a hard one. I think for me, this is just personality trait. I'm massively optimistic about what The future will bring. I always look at that first. So I'm excited about it and I want to be part of it. Yeah. The second related thing to that is I want to make an impact on it. I kind of feel like in my life, I've always wanted to be more of a producer than a consumer. And so I want to make that impact. I want to create and be known for it a little bit, maybe not so much like ego wise, but just, I want to have that That impact. I felt like I did that with the radio industry. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is I've always had a deep fear of failure. And you might say that's the opposite of a growth mentality, but I've never wanted to fail. And I always like said, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm actually weirdly a person who takes a lot of risk, you know, because I'm in startups and do all that stuff. And I do have a growth mentality because I like to learn all the time. But I do not want to fail. And so I got both a little bit. Yeah. And I think that persistence, or I've got a bulldog view of like, don't fail. So fear of failure combined with optimism growth mentality related to learning as much as I can. That's probably classic. That's what it is.
0: Classic.
1: Classic. It is is what it is. It's what its is. It's like what you are and you look at yourself and you say, that's my thing. And also like, I can't retire right now. I can't. I just can't. I mean, it's like, there's too much going on and there's too much to
0: learn still. Love it. I love it. And one other question, which I struggle with, I think most people do. And that is, how do you find a co-founder that, That's tricky. Mirrors, but also compliments and sort of fills in the gaps, you know, because you've done it now successfully. So talk a little bit about, you know, how you went about that.
1: Co-founder is the first, but there's another aspect to that, which is it's the people that are on the journey with you because it could be a long journey. Yeah. And they're there with you at each step. So the co-founder is the first one. You know, I'm not sure you just know when you see it, like you have to be able to be compatible with them for the long haul. You know, it has to be something you could see working with them as a friend, as a colleague, as a partner in crime, as somebody you can trust. You have to be able to trust them. Yes. So it's not that dissimilar to certain types of relationships in your life, you know, especially like significant others, right? and divorces don't go well in those scenarios, you know? So like, how do you find them? It's a good question. I think the way I found them are two ways, just my experience. One was friends introduced us. One of them said to me about Jatin, I would trust Jatin as much as I'd trust you, Mike. I'm like, well, you trust me a lot. I know. It like right, kind right. of plays into your ego. Right. Like, well, he must be great then. <laughs> so I loved meeting Jatin, and it was totally true. Like, He was the perfect co-founder for a decade plus. And then with Kevin and Gary, we met each other from our working together. And so you had the opportunity to kind of get to know them. Yep. So it was kind of like a known thing getting together. But the other people that you want to make sure that you're on that journey with was really important to us when we looked at both our angel pre-seed investors as well as our seed investor lobby and others who are involved. And that was, they're all around the table too. And they're the people you talk with maybe a little less frequently than the co-founders, but you do you know, work with them and you talk things out. And during difficult times, those are the people who are going to be like, standing next to you and figuring out what to do. Mm -hmm. So we made a decision with the easy company is that we were going to choose people that we want to take the journey with. And we focused on that as a criteria. We raised money when there was a lot of interest in Web3. So we had a lot of folks that we could have worked with. Another thing is life's kind of too short. You realize that after you go a decade in a startup, I had investors that were so important at certain times. We would not have survived without them. And they're invested and Remix AI. Yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. Because I want to work with them again. And I just, you know what they're made of. I know what they're made of. I know that they're for you, you know, and that kind of extended team. Yeah. You know, is how we look at it. So it's yeah. awesome. Well, Mike, this was
0: so much fun. I hope I didn't put you on the grill too long, <laughs> but I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing with us your background, your stories, your experiences. By the way, for those of you that have not tried the Remix AI app, you are going—you are in for such a treasure. It's so fun. It's so interesting. So download the app. Thank you very and, much. And this is a lot of fun. fun. Thanks for making it. All right, this is Buddy Arnheim at The Fabric. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to our next episode. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim and I look forward to our next conversation.